one. And going live. There we go. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. Welcome to VUX World. As we approach, I don't know if you know this, Molly, but VUX World is approaching its fifth anniversary. Nice. There you Congratulations. go. Congratulations. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, it'll be, uh, it might be two weeks' time. You just missed out on the flagship five year anniversary episode. <laughs> it's on, a, I think it's <laughs> 12th of February, perhaps, um, or 14th. Not that I'm counting. It can't be the 14th because that's Valentine's Day, isn't it? I would have got killed if I'd have been podcasting on Valentine's Day. <laughs> but um, it's, <laughs> it's somewhere around that, that mark, anyway. Uh, so, yeah. But thanks for joining me. Appreciate it. How's things? Great. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. No worries. No worries. It's uh, it's an absolute pleasure. Uh, and thank you all for tuning in. If you are tuning in, uh, I want to give a quick shout out to the event that we're doing in uh, in March. We're going to be at the EU Chatbot Summit in Edinburgh. Fantastic city. Have you been to Edinburgh before, Molly? I actually have. Yeah. Have you? Yeah. Nice. I did a little golf trip with my family like probably five years ago. So we flew into there. Ah, <laughs> oh, you're a golfer. Yes, I am. I was a golfer at the time. I wasn't a golfer at the time. I was a spectator, but then I got into it afterwards. Oh, fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, some of the best courses in the world are in in, in uh, Scotland, St Andrews and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, so it's going to be in Edinburgh. It's going to be absolutely immense. We've got all kinds of interesting companies that are going to be presenting there. We've got Love Holidays, uh, Stepstone, who has Total Jobs Group and stuff in the, in that in its portfolio. Decathlon, LNER, uh, Core AI are there going to be presenting our our stage. Um, it is absolutely it's going to be amazing. We're going to be sharing the best practice for enterprise conversational AI imp- implementation. And if you're tuning into this podcast right now, whether you're watching live or watching uh, or listening to the replay. You can save, uh, I think it's around about 20 or 30% on the tickets if you use the code VUXEU23 at theeuropeanchatbot.com. European chat, theeuropeanchatbot.com, promo code VUXEU23 will save you some money on your tickets. I hope definitely to see you there. It might be a bit of a long shot for you, Molly, given that you're over the other side of the pond. But uh, for those in the UK, definitely get yourself to VUX at the EU Chatbot Summit. Uh, March it is, by the way. I should tell you the date. It's March the sixteenth. Uh, so there we go. But uh, so yeah, so you've been to Edinburgh. You must have. Did you enjoy it? I did. It, it was a good time. I only spent like, a few days actually in Edinburgh, but we were, yeah. we were doing the driving, like you said, did uh, St Andrews, and um, it was actually the year that the open was at Carnoustie, so I went to that. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Wicked. That Fun. sounds really good. Yeah, nice one. Cool. So, uh, so tell us about yourself, Molly. For those that for those that don't know, uh, tell us about yourself and and what you do at Experia. Lead experience, uh, user experience lead is your title. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. So I'm a conversation designer at Expedia. Um, past work with Home Depot. I've been in the conversation space for about five years now. It's one of those things I feel like you hear a lot of people saying you kind of just fall into. Um, and that being the product that I was working on that really got me more involved in the conversation design of things. Um, I was really kind of breaking into UX at the time because my, my background before that was in advertising. Um, okay. And just loved it. It was one of those things that kind of, it was a nice little mix, you know, moving from advertising and going kind of into design. And, you know, you're really, Advertising is all about how you're communicating with people, how can it like resonate with people in a very different way, but you're kind of thinking about all of like the same kind of psychological stuff of like, what are people thinking about? What's going to resonate with them? And so it ended up being a really nice shift and something that intrigued me as well, just personally. So at Expedia, um, working on all of the assistance across the platform. So it's, it's much more heavy and the, I would say tech, technical space. I don't know if that's fair to say. It's just that Home Depot has such a, right. you know, presence in stores. So that's something that they really focus on. So that drives a lot of what happens on the technology side of things. Whereas Expedia, it's kind of technology first since, you know, everything's kind of online or over the phone or through chat. So working on the, all of those, those platforms across um, the enterprise. Nice, nice. So it's interesting. A lot of people have come into conversation design from a kind of like a marketing background. I think that like a lot of the use cases 
especially sort of, I suppose, like 2016, 2017, maybe 2018, there was a lot of activity around kind of marketing use cases for conversational hours. And I suppose there still is, you know, there's, you know, a lot of like haptic and stuff that focus on commerce. And we did a talk desk webinar with talk desk last, last year at the end of last year, which, you know, was all focusing around commerce and stuff. Um, how, how is that the kind of use cases you're working on with Expedia? Are they focused predominantly on that kind of like front end customer journey, um, or is it more sort of customer support and stuff like that? Like like some of the some of the other companies, like potentially Home Depot, for example. A little bit of both. We kind of look at it, you know, like pre and post booking. Um, there's kind of different reasons that people are coming and trying to get help, and it might be you know they're trying to make a decision on. What's the best like thing to book for them? Um, do other packages? How can they kind of get things going together? And a lot of it's like minute details as well. Like if you think about, you know, you're going to travel somewhere. Maybe you're traveling. You said you have a child, so you're traveling with your child, and you want to know if there's certain things at that house or something of the sort. Um, so you want to ask those questions that might not be on the site, and then as well as kind of the post booking, something goes wrong, or maybe you need help, you get there and you can't get in if it's uh, Verbo or, you know, there's the front desk isn't giving you the help they need that you need when you get there. Um, so there's there's both of those. And um, our group really looks at that end to end, which is a little bit unique because the other teams tend to be split out and focus on one space versus the other. But what you see a lot with like the assistance and support is you really need that full journey view to understand kind of what's going on with that traveler and how can we best help them. Mm. You use the word assistance, plural, a few times. Is that because there's many different assistants, many different bots? Like how, how does it sort of, how does it work? Have you got different bots that do different things? Like how does it, how does it actually, how does that work? I guess maybe assistance isn't it's plural more for the modality, not necessarily because there's a bunch of different ones doing different things. It's just that, like, are you reaching out via chat? Are you reaching out, you know, over voice? Are you connecting with one of our live agents? Because, you know, that's all kind of the same, even though we might have like the virtual assistants that help you with certain things. It's like we still need to understand what's happening once you get to that live agent as well. So looking at all of those kind of like assistants in different areas as opposed to like multiple assistants doing different things. I'm with you. Fair dues, fair dues. Um, so you mentioned lots of different channels there. Is the kind of Expedia digital assistant, what what channels is it? Where would, where would people interact with it right now? On the web, on the app, or over the phone are the primary ways that you'd be interacting with it. And then as well as like on some of the, on the web, there's like some areas where like you might just be like getting help and it might look more like a web page than like an actual chat bot. So trying to bring some of that all together of, you know, it's fluid and where you're getting help and it's not as much about like what it looks like or where, but your touch point feels the same and it feels like you're getting the same type of assistance no matter where you are. Okay. So is that on, on the, in that latter example, is that using sort of NLP based search or something like that? Or, or is it the interface of the assistant itself will turn more into a knowledge base kind of format? The, the latter. So turning a little bit more okay. into a knowledge base. Um, so it just doesn't look like, you know, I, you got the pop-up modal in the corner and you know you're in an assistant. It just might be like embedded in a different way, but using the same functionality. Interesting. That's that's one of the things that I think we'll see a bit more of is is taking it away from the little pop-up in the corner and making it a little bit more of the real estate on the site. <clears throat> you know, there's no reason why certain pages don't have, you know, little kind of embedded you know, conversational interfaces that allows you to interrogate a certain part of the site or whatever it might be, you know, being a bit more, you know, I suppose it's putting, what, what, correct me if I'm wrong, I'll see what you think about this, but it seems as though like designers have such a strong kind of role in the creation of a website. Mm -hmm. They have such a strong role in the creation of a chatbot or a digital assistant. And then what happens is, something I think probably more technical in nature makes a decision or someone makes a decision to just put this little widget in the bottom corner of a web page. And it's almost like all the effort that's gone into the design of the website and all the effort that's gone into the design of the digital assistant, there's this disconnect in terms of making the experience of the website and the experience of the assistant the same experience. Seems to be a bit of a disconnect there, do you think? I totally agree. I think it's something we see often, you know, and it just like pops up and it's kind of giving you something, but 
from like a user's perspective, it can kind of be out of context or it's like, where'd you get that from? Or what are you doing? And there's not as much like connectivity and the actual journey and experience that our like travelers or customers are seeing. And I think that shift, because I, I definitely, and other designers we've been talking to, I feel like are thinking about that as well as how can we make it uh, not as intrusive because there's also, um, I would say almost like a battle of trust when it comes to making sure that, you know, users are willing to go back and interact with your platform and um, want to test out the technology because they have a bad experience somewhere and maybe it is in that like in the box corner chatbot feel, they're going to be less likely to then go and interact with yours. So I think that's something that we're trying to get around as well of how do we continue to build trust and how do we do it in a way that doesn't feel as intrusive because if like, you definitely see a lot of people having strong opinions about a traditional chatbot at times. Mm. That's the difference, I suppose, between putting a conversational AI in your call center and the voice channel versus a chatbot, because on the voice channel, the adoption of that is just built in. If you call and you get put through to an assistant, you're more than likely just going to talk to it you know whether or not it solves your issue you're more than likely to give it a go whereas on a website there's a there's a big disconnect between the, the a chatbot being there and someone actually using it. it it needs to be a conscious effort on behalf of the user to engage with it rather than it being a default behavior built into the channel sort of thing mm-hmm. it's uh interesting i don't know if you've done any exploration as far as like you know usage and adoption rates on the different channels that you have? Is there a difference in terms of customer adoption based on, you know, web versus contact center or otherwise? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I don't have any, like, I haven't done anything specific to look at the usage between the two, but I do think you're right when it comes to voice versus chat. Cause I mean, you kind of have to, some, some companies, you know, force you into calling, you have an issue. The only way to solve that is by calling. And if they have a voice assistant, you're just going to have to use it. Cause there's no other way to get through it, which, you know, that, that could be good and bad. I definitely have some opinions on that. Like, should we be forcing people to do something that they don't want to do? I don't know if that's always the right um, methodology, but you're definitely, have to more often in voice and to be honest I feel like you see as well um like the, a lot of times they're already disgruntled in that scenario and they already know they're probably going to be more disgruntled when they're going through it so people kind of just like bug up and they're like we're going through it so there's a lot of opportunity to um kind of surprise and delight I think in the voice channel and if you can you know really think about the customer build a better experience it's awesome. And I think it will give you some like trust and continuity to them, like willing to try in other areas as well. So I think that's where like, that's a little fun to play with as a designer and really think about like, how can we make this better knowing that, I mean, most people that are calling a customer service, they're, they're, they're already not very happy that they have to do that and take that time out of their day. So how can we just like make mm. it better there? Yeah, definitely, definitely. Uh, hopefully, my microphone is a little bit louder. The I got some feedback there from uh, Miguel, who was watching uh, the broadcast. Said it was a bit quiet. Hopefully, that's a bit better, Miguel. I've turned it up a little bit. Um, yeah, yeah. I suppose you're right in terms of like forcing people into a certain uh, channel is is not exactly a good idea. I think the 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 behavioral scientists would call that a gentle nudge <laughs> whereas a customer on the other end of it which who is uh, not very happy because they've had an issue or whatever is uh, probably not going to view it the same um, but yeah no it's uh, yeah it's interesting um so can you walk us through a little bit of of what the you know what the setup looks like at Expedia you, you know you're kind of running on the conversation design side like who you're working with what does the team sort of look like is it multiple teams like can you give us a bit of a flavor for what the kind of setup is like over there yeah so as a designer we're partnering with product and engineering also have you know some machine learning specialists that are great especially when we're working on the NLU side of things um, our design is actually split into, we have some specialists with like content design as well as research. And so that was a little bit new for me as opposed to at Home Depot, the conversation designer kind of wore all hats. So you were doing research. You're also the content creator there as well. Um, but it's been really great to have the different specialties and kind of 
especially seeing, you know, it, it gives you the chance to really hone in on what your expertise is and then really collaborate and work together. And you always have those kind of different minds to bounce ideas off of, which I really enjoy. Um, so I, I think just in general, having more heads solving a problem and making sure that you're not kind of getting stuck in a rut is helpful. So even if it's, even if it was when I was like a single designer on a team, there was always those opportunities for like collaboration or going to crits and stuff like that so that we could work together. But yeah, at Expedia, that's kind of how we're broken out. And then um, different teams focused on kind of like different areas, depending on how we're trying to service a traveler. So you might have somebody focused on the voice area, somebody on chat. Um, and then within the chat, it just um, you might have different focuses depending on kind of what the traveler is trying to accomplish. Mm. It's interesting because as teams begin to kind of mature, you tend to find a little bit of more of a division of labor, as you said, but a lot of the kind of smaller teams would have one designer who does the who does the architecture, does the, some of the, maybe it's the technical specification, does some of the NLU design, does a lot of the testing, might do their user research and stuff. <clears throat> and that's kind of, that comes with pluses and minuses, doesn't it? Like on the one hand, you've got complete ownership pretty much, especially if you're using a, a low-code platform as well. You can build most of it yourself, you know. Mm -hmm. So you've got a degree of ownership and you've got a real thorough understanding of what you're working on. Uh, the downside is that without other people's perspectives, you tend to miss things. And also without kind of specialisms in certain areas, you end up, I think, overlooking stuff that, you know, because you're trying to focus on NLU design and performance, and then you're focusing on dialogue design and prompt creation, and you're focusing on whether or not the end-to-end -end conversation makes sense. And it's kind of like you're focusing on so much stuff, you can miss quite a bit of stuff, can't you? Like, So I think having that division of labor tends to tends to work. Yeah, I definitely agree. And I will say that like wearing the all hats when I was first coming into the conversational space, it was really nice because I learned so much. So when it comes to being like a newer designer and having that ability to kind of dive into all those different areas and really just test what is it that I'm interested in? Like, how can I build these skills? So uh, as far as like my kind of career tra trajectory and how I learned and evolved within this space, I definitely appreciate that that was kind of my starting ground because it did allow me to test the waters a little bit and really get a thorough understanding of how the space works. And now I'm able to understand too, like my own self and like where I want to focus and then also how to better partner with some of these other specialists as well. Mm, nice. So where does your, where does your role begin and end then? Let's say for someone who is, I literally had someone connect with me this morning or yesterday, um, trying to kind of get into conversation design, wondering ways in which, you know, she could break into, into conversation design to give people like that, a bit of a flavor for what the role actually looks like. Where does your role kind of start and end in a given project sort of thing? What's the kind of scope of it, if you like? Yeah. So it starts in like the discovery phase when we get the problem, we're kind of digging into the problem. What are we trying to solve? What's the best way to solve it? Um, I think a lot of times as a designer, um, you're partnering with product and product might have an idea of like, hey, we know we have this problem. We think this is how we want to solve it. And sometimes, you know, different things like a chatbot or assistant might be like thrown around as a solution. So I also think we kind of have that um, responsibility to evaluate the problem and really look at it and say like, is this the best solution? Like, yes, I know you're coming to me as a conversation designer and I would love to help you, but I think it's also getting them to understand like sometimes that's needed. Sometimes, you know, we need a new self-service functionality and sometimes that's not the best. So that's kind of where like the discovery phase of it starts and then moving through um, the, the design for it. So either like setting the strategy or looking and seeing like, where are we trying to engage and what like modality is this going to be on the flow writing, um, doing research, um, going through all that kind of stuff. And then it really kind of ends at the handoff to development. Well, that's hard to say too, because I feel like it kind of never really ends. Like there's also like always that, you know, like continuous learning, but if you're looking at like one given project, you know, starting with a typical discovery and going through like the designing of 
the given solution for that problem and then handing it off to development. But I'd say we also like continuously try to look at the data to say like, is it working? Are there any improvements that need to be made? And um, it, cycling then from there. Mm, nice. Yeah, that discovery part, I think, is is really crucial. And, and I think that there's a lot of companies that just jump into conversational AI because it's it's nice and fancy and stuff like that. And it's kind of like any use case will do. Let's just run at it. For those who are trying to kind of understand a little bit more about what makes a good use case for conversational AI to solve, you mentioned there about, you know, working with product teams to kind of, first of all, evaluate the problem. What kind of things are you looking for when you are evaluating the problem? What does that kind of piece of the puzzle look like? I think it's getting a good understanding of can we solve this problem? Like, is this a complex problem? Like, sometimes the answer is that even though a customer might not want to speak to a live agent, like they need to, like they need to just get there. This person is going to have a much better understanding of what's happening. Um, maybe this is something that's been solved already, whether it's like on web or in voice, and we can point you to a good area where it's been solved. So there's no need for us to remake the wheel just to have it out there. There's something else that we can kind of leverage and either like put you or guide you in that right direction. Um, when it comes to solving pieces within a virtual assistant, I think a lot of times it's about defining what your scope and capabilities are there because there's things that we know assistants do well and there's things that they can't really do that well so making sure you're within that scope and you're also transparent about what that scope is so it's clear to the user um, what they can and can't get help with so i think it's just kind of like digging into those different areas and then kind of from there like defining what is it that we're able to do for this problem we're trying to solve and and does it fit within this and and like you know what our team has the capabilities of solving or is it something where it's like hey this is this is maybe more of a process that we need to look at more holistically and solve the fact that this process isn't being done well and it's not something where we can just you know throw a module into a chatbot and say like hey now this is better because we just gave you like a few pieces of information <laughs> nice do you have any um i don't know criteria or any sort of frameworks for that sort of evaluation process you know we used to use some stuff with um we've, we've got a few different things but the thing we used to look at is things like you know for assessing whether something is a good fit for voice like is the user in a context which restricts the use of their arms, for example, like washing up? Or are they in a context where it restricts the use of their uh, mouth, like in a public space? And the context will depend on, you know, given the context that might lend itself to a certain type of use case. And then the qualities of the interaction itself or the requirements of the interaction might also lend itself to a different type of use case. For example, if the if the information we're trying to convey is like tab it's not a really great fit for voice whereas it may be a better visual sort of compliment so there's like there's a couple of things like that which will allow someone to say okay this use case here has these kind of criteria we believe that it is or isn't a good fit for which kind of channel or which kind of conversation have you got anything like that any frameworks or criteria that you kind of use to to assess whether a problem can be solved with with a conversational interface yeah, I think the second part of what you just talked about, I really resonate with um, thinking about like what is the information we're trying to deliver and does that make sense? Like sometimes, you know, if we, it is very visual heavy or if we're trying to give you multiple options or if it's going to be something really lengthy to read out, doing that over voice doesn't really make sense. And also voice, um, at least for my experience um, being that it was so tied to contact centers has been a very specific use case. It's, you know, people who are coming, they have some issue that they need help with and they're calling for that need. And then when we're assessing if it's a good if it's a good use case for, you know, self-service, it's can we close that gap without having to get them somewhere else? Or can we take some pieces of information before they're getting to the live agent that will help expedite the process? So it was very much about, you know, like making sure we were 
forward moving with that? Like, how do we show progress and and not just make it that, hey, we're collecting information that then the live agent's going to ask you for again. If we can't pass that information on, there's no point in wasting their time. We should just make sure we're getting them where they need to go. So I would say the voice use cases is pretty specific to those help, you know, contact center um, calls. And then when it comes to the chat side of things, it's a lot of, you know, like, what kind of information are we trying to relay? How can we show that? Um, what kind of visuals or different things like that make sense? Is it something, and I guess something I didn't actually say with the voice stuff is maybe it is that, you know, if we have to give you more information or if we know you'll benefit from this different route, like maybe it is something where we're gonna offer to send you a text and maybe move you out of that channel, if that makes sense. Mm. Um, a lot of times when they've already made decisions, so we try not to switch as if it's something where it's like they're already they're already in the voice channel, they probably tried to try a few different things. We might want to give them the option, but we're not going to try to force them out of it if it's not something they're interested in. Yeah, voice can sometimes be a last resort for people, can't it? Oh, I've tried this, I've tried that. I'm gonna have to just call them, you know. <laughs> and then when they get through to someone, it's like, all right, okay. Now you want me to go back to the website? Oh, thanks. Yeah. But I, th- I have seen, <laughs> I have seen some some interesting applications of, you know, at least kind of like, uh, you know, opening up a parallel channel. So, for example, there's some good use cases out there for like debt collection, for example, like someone calls and they need to go through like an expenditure, like review or whatever, then sending them a link to a form is kind of, a, it makes sense because they can complete the form, but then they can stay on the phone. They can ask questions. Oh, what, do, what if I don't have my previous five years address? Oh, well, just put your last address or whatever it might be. You can ask kind of questions about it. And then other things like if there's a use case for a voice channel that requires the user to submit something like a photo or like proof of ID or something like that, you know, you've got kind of like uh, your ability to just send a text, get them to, or a WhatsApp message, send them, get them to send it back and so on. So it kind of, it, I've seen it kind of work but what i haven't seen is like live data around completion rates of these things mm-hmm. do you know what i mean mm-hmm. if someone phones up and they're in the middle of a conversation and you send them a text and they need to send you a photo or whatever how many of them kind of drop out at that point because they're like oh, do you know what this is just too fucking long i can't be bothered with it. <laughs> you know right. i don't know if you've got any 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 insights on on that kind of uh parallel channel uh use cases or not I don't. I mean, the ones you just named, though, seem very in line with how we think about it of, you know, trying to continue to progress you forward. So if it's something that we're going to have to get this information from you at some point anyway, in order for us to help you, I think that makes a lot of sense. But that'd be really interesting to see that data. Like, how often do people drop out? Is it something where they're able to complete it? Is it hard to do? Um, I think that'd be really interesting. Yeah, because there's a lot of companies out there that kind of have this as almost like a USP, not a USP necessarily, but like a, a feature. Oh, look, you can send a text message. So you can do this while they're, while they're on the phone. And it's like, that's kind of cool. But does it translate in real life mm-hmm. uh, is the question. Um, but yeah, so any any other things in that in that discovery phase that you think is important to understand? We've spoke a little bit about use case feasibility, problem feasibility. You kind of alluded to like, do we have the, whether it's technology capability or resource capacity or whatever it might be to be able to deliver this kind of thing? Is it better served in a different way? Any other things in that sort of discovery phase that you're, that you're looking out for in particular? Hmm. Um. Nothing I could think of that we haven't talked through. Um, yeah. Yeah, because most of it at that point is kind of just the problem scoping paired with the technology stuff yeah. you're talking about. Yeah. And then once you've got through that discovery phase, you found a problem we think it can be solved. We understand, broadly speaking, what a kind of high-level solution might look like and what it might take to do it. Can you walk us through the next phase of the design? What does that design process look like? Yeah, so it's kind of taking that information from the discovery phase, starting to build out a starter design. Um, At that point, I would definitely be closely engaged with research to start thinking through, like, what users can we start to test this with, getting some feedback, um, attending any sort of, like, design crit sessions. That's when I really like to get it in front of other designers as well, especially if you can identify designers that might be 
in a similar space, but maybe they're working just on like the web or um, a different channel than you, but they're solving that by, and I mean, maybe I'll use an example from for Expedia. So if we were solving something um, with a booking, then we might want to be pairing with the team who actually handles the booking process through, you know, you clicked your hotel and now you're going to check out. And so they're very, they understand that process very well. And maybe we're trying to solve for something within chat. That'd be something where I'd want to be having a design crit with them so that we're getting their feedback since they have a similar knowledge scope. They're just looking at the problem differently. So I try to identify those areas where we might be able to connect with different teams who can give us just, you know, some additional feedback to what we're already looking at it and looking at from a different perspective um, and lots of testing and just iterating there, working with our product and engineering team as well to start thinking through like what might the first phase of this be because our designs tend to be at a higher level to start and we might be looking, you know, like one level above what we can actually deliver first. And so we want to start bringing in engineering to talk about like what might that first phase be and how can we kind of break this down into chunks so that we're delivering it in that agile way and not saying like, hey, this is the final one, we got to deliver this all at once. So we definitely try to break that down into pieces so it's a little bit more bite sized. Mm, nice that's yeah that's a, a good way of approaching it that's that's the way we tend to do it and also how i've always approached the kind of whole concept of service design which is you know design for the best possible situation that you could imagine and then you know work your way backwards from that so if this is the ideal what's stopping us from doing that okay, well, these fundamental things are stopping us from doing that exact thing. Okay, so in the short term, what can we do that's more or less as far as we can get towards this, but not kind of having to cross that kind of, you know, those those major kind of stumbling blocks, um, which is good. And you're speaking my language with user research and usability testing. I think there's far too many um, teams don't really do it. It's, it's, it's crazy how I think, you know, there's design teams all over the world, not necessarily design as such, maybe, maybe that would be too much of a generalization, but teams working on conversational AI that never have a user involved until the last moment. Um, and that's even including things like, I would even class, you know, analyzing transcripts and stuff like that as user research because you're informing your design decisions based on actual user behavior. But there's just a lot of it lacking, and it's 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 uh, it's crazy. Because <laughs> yeah. how can you design a conversation without the other the other half of that conversation? Yeah, and it's so easy to get stuck in the way you think if you're not testing it with other people. Even if you have a team, I remember what, like one of the first um, testing rounds we did when I was at Home Depot. It was like we were all there. We were like the designers that were working on it, even our product managers and engineers, you know, we were like, this is, this is thought out. We got this. Like, this is definitely like, there's no way we missed anything. Then you test it and you get so surprised. It's so easy to just, you know, almost like group thing comes into play, even though you have a bunch of different great minds trying to solve um, for the design and make sure you're not missing anything. I just feel like it's always, it's always really interesting. People just think differently. You learn a lot. Um, it challenges your perspective. So I, I'm with you. I definitely love the research side of things. And I'd say for the new people too, because I know you you mentioned that there's some people kind of breaking into this space, like get scrappy with it. Don't feel like, you know, it's not that you always have to go to user testing or do a full-fledged one. Like maybe you're just like getting outside of the box and asking some friends or family that um, and having them test it with you or reading things out loud. Um, so think of different scrappy ways to do it as well. It doesn't have to be as formulated as it might be, you know, in an enterprise company when we're going to release something. Mm, definitely. Any, any outside kind of insight is much better than, you know, insular kind of thinking, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's mad. I think humans are, are generally, I think, kind of like we just have this thing where we get an idea and we just run with that idea. I think a lot of what designers or good designers do well is they get an idea and or they, in fact, they generate lots of ideas and then figure out which of the few ideas here has an opportunity to be successful. They then validate those ideas through user research and then take the one that shows the most promise and then do a bit more on it and then go back and revalidate it. So it's almost like you're, you're sort of like, every time you take a step, you're, you're, you're testing the ground in front of you before you put your weight on it. Whereas 
I think that this is not just the case for design projects. I think it's just humans in general. We tend to just take a step and get onto a path and just continue down that path without really, you know, without thinking about it. So I think the more user involvement you have in in conversational AI processes, definitely the better it is, I think. Mm -hmm. I totally agree. Yeah. What about, so we mentioned, we mentioned these, uh, you know, people who are kind of, uh, trying to break into conversation design, maybe junior conversation designers who, um, you know, maybe I know, I know of a couple of companies, uh, there's obviously a lot more than this, but I know of a few companies, uh, that are salient right now that have a very small team, one designer who does most of the, most of everything, a developer that they'll work with who, who will manage some of the integrations and stuff like that. And that's pretty much it. Some of them may get to a product owner. Some of them may kind of, um, I mean, I, I was going to say user research, but actually that's not usually what I'm seeing. So for these like really small teams or for those that are not really part of a, uh, you know, a conversation design setup, what are some of the differences between those kind of fairly self-contained, self-managed, small teams working on, you know, relatively smallish projects versus working at somewhere like Expedia, where you've got a, a much larger team, you've got a division of labor based on certain sort of like skill sets and job functions. And the process involves a lot more people, arguably a lot more gates in the process. Like what are some of the sort of differences between that, the small, I suppose you could call it like startup or beginner um, conversational AI team versus a more established enterprise team? It's a good question. The first thing that comes to mind is kind of the scale at which you're looking at solving the problem. Um, I think like in enterprises, it tends to be a lot more vast, which is not very surprising, but you're also then taking in um, the different pieces and how they're already established. Whereas with a smaller team, it might be you have the ability to kind of move through that and try new things a lot quicker and faster. You probably have a really good understanding of what's happening end to end, maybe at the whole company, even outside of just your space. And so you're able to kind of digest and pick up that information a lot quicker. Whereas at a larger company, sometimes it's, you know, information finding in the upfront, you know, in that discovery phase, it's not just that you're like, you're discovering the problem scope. You might just be discovering like what information might already be out there and somebody Maybe you did it three years before and then it stopped and now you're picking it back up, but you didn't know that they were doing that. So there's a lot of um, different ways to look at it. So it's like the scale gets larger and then also like the different teams that you're, there's a lot of different teams that you might be working with in order to kind of like move it all together. I think I've been trying a lot more to get the teams that I work with it to think about it as an ecosystem, even if it might not be something that we own, like how can we get other teams to buy into the fact that we should all be caring about the same problems and looking at it holistically, as opposed to just saying like, Hey, I'm focused on this space and I'm focused on this space. But if we really look at that all together and kind of like more move towards solving that, I think that's the beauty of kind of smaller places at times is it's easier to accomplish those types of um, scenarios where you can, you can look at the whole picture and it's not as hard to find what pieces like made that whole picture. Whereas like we might have, you know, 85% of the puzzle and you're just like, I don't even know if this other piece exists. Like, does somebody have that? Where is it? What's going on there? So there's a lot of like information finding in that, in that sense. Mm. I suppose, you know, a much bigger organization, much more technology, much more risk in terms of getting something wrong. Um, does that mean that things take longer compared to a smaller, more sort of nimble team? Like, obviously, it's it's understandable if it does because the risk of getting something wrong is huge, potentially. So, does that mean that with the added complexity, things inevitably take a bit longer? I think they can. Um, my current experience is no, because they have a very much an attitude of like let's get this done, let's test it, let's move, let's learn, which I think is really positive. The fact that the organization as a whole has that mentality of learning and it's not 
because I know a lot of times with larger corporations, it can kind of be like, I can't believe you did this. Like you needed to check X, Y, and Z box before this got out there. And, you know, now something, whatever it may be, or has changed is coming down on like your head. And it's the ability to innovate quickly and move fast is kind of taken away a little bit, but that's not my experience currently. They definitely push us to learn and grow and try and kind of like iterate from there, which I very much appreciate. I just think that there's some pieces just in general in an enterprise where it's like harder to find pieces of information that it's probably just easier to find in a smaller company. Mm, Definitely. Definitely. Um, So in terms of sort of like challenges, you mentioned that obviously working in a larger company, information is a bit harder to to come across. You kind of alluded to a little bit earlier about kind of like trying to bring the whole team onto the same page to kind of work towards the same sort of goals and stuff like that and and think about things more holistically. Um, What are some of the other challenges that, you know, an experienced conversation designer in a large kind of enterprise would would face? What could people anticipate? I think um, another thing I'd add to that is just communication and communication and keeping like how can we best communicate together in a way that everyone understands, which kind of comes with that holistic view of how do we bring everyone on the same page. I just think at the scale of a larger company, um, it's much more important how you document things, how you convey the designs that you have, uh, bringing it to different types of, you know, exposure meetings or reviews, that kind of stuff is very important because that's how people understand what you're working on. And that's how they, you know, want to support you and want to help you grow, or maybe they know information that you don't. So I think that kind of stuff is really important to think about once you're at a larger scale is just how you're sharing your information and how you're documenting it. Mm, that's really good. And and how do you kind of document it? Because that's kind of one of the the challenges for for all all people working in conversational AI, which is that sometimes what you document isn't necessarily what gets built because you might not go through the intricacies of documenting every single twist and turn that an application might have. Um, and also, in order to make some of the functionality happen in the design, a developer might need to actually do something different in order to bring about something like that. So the production sometimes doesn't always align, but it's it's obviously important to have documentation so that everybody first from the either the product owner or senior management sort of perspective can look at it and say this is the experiences that we're creating a designers or designers can collaborate on it and say this is we're all aligned that this is what the experience ought to be and the technical people and and, and those can kind of look at that and say okay we know what the experience should be we know what to build so it's like that documentation, obviously, it's done in lots of different ways in different places. There's tools out there like VoiceFlow that would do it. There's other tools like Visio and, and things like that, that that kind of do it. Like, I'm not asking you to necessarily kind of, you know, uh, showcase the tooling, but what are these artifacts that get created? Um, and can you walk us through a little bit about like what is the key documentation that you that you sort of need to be creating as a conversation designer in the enterprise? Mm-hmm. Yeah, ours tends to be paired between like visuals and flows. So we always start with the flows of like what's the logic we're going, we're working through like defining intents, defining those entities, any variables, all that kind of stuff is well-documented within a flow. We also try to identify, like you mentioned, you know, you might have that view of, hey, this is where the design should be. We're all in agreement. We love this direction, but we also might know that that's not going to be the first thing we're going to ship, or maybe it's not technically feasible to start with. So we try to always keep that view and have that labeled somewhere of like, hey, right now, this is, you know, our North Star we're trying to get to so that everyone can kind of reference back to that, especially when we're kind of building on the additional iterations. And then we'll save another version of it where it's, hey, this is where we're actually at today. This is what was handed off to development. We try as much as we can to keep up with any of the changes when it comes to this is actually, you know, being pushed to production, but we had to, you know, scale back X or Y and take that out. We try to either like just notate it in the design or change it if, um, you know, we have a designer on that 
given project still and update it because it is nice to know because you, you know you're always going to end up going back to it and somebody's going to have the question of like what's live how do we understand it um but that process is ever evolving for us for sure i think that there's things that work really well that we have stuck with like i think having the north star version and making sure that everyone at least has their eye on what we're kind of striving towards i think the end of like keeping up with what's live and what was shipped it can sometimes be a little bit harder depending on how everyone's staffed and if somebody's still like focused on that project by the time like development's actually done with it um so that that is definitely a piece that I am always like, how can we improve this? How can we work together? How can we like see or like do reviews kind of regularly to see how we can update this kind of stuff so that everyone knows what's going on? Because it goes back to that thing that I'm just thinking about now of like, how does our whole ecosystem work together? If you don't know what's live, then I mean, it's really hard to say, like, how could you improve it? Um, mm. We're not looking at that. Yeah, the um, it's interesting because there isn't anything that's solved that problem yet from what I can see aside from culture, you know, like in, in an ideal world, all things that differ from what was specified should really go back to the design process. So if the engineers come across something that can't quite be done or they need to make a workaround and it affects the impact, impacts the design, it should really first go back to the design process to say, look, this bit here we can't do. We need to figure out a different, different way of doing it. Then the designers would then create that different way of doing it, taking consultation from the technical team to make it workable. And then that gets then rebriefed. But the reality of working on a day-to-day -day basis is that that just doesn't happen, you know, because it's far quicker for someone just to do it. And then, and then that's, that's that. So there seems to be kind of like a, and I don't think you can rely on process alone because process is basically just people agreeing to do things a certain way. And, there's going to be people that don't follow that process. So it's, it's difficult to kind of do that. And it's always an issue because once you've got a system that is live and all of a sudden you, you need to, you know, add a new intent or you need to, you know, change something. It's often easier to do that in the production system. Did I lose you there? Did you, did I lose you there? Or are you still there? I'm still here. I lost you for a minute, but you came cool. right back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cool. Cool. I thought so. Um, so I was basically saying like, it's once something's live, it's often easier for the people that maintain it to just continue maintaining it in the live system, which means that six months down the line, what's actually live may well be completely different to the initial design. But then something happens or something, a new use case gets, you know, thought about or created. And then you need to go back to the design again. And it's kind of like this. It's yeah, it's just this disconnect between the development and production and, and the design. I don't think anyone's quite managed to solve it. And I don't exactly know what the answer is, to be honest, because everyone's using different systems in production. So it's hard for one single design tool to be able to cater with the output of so many different production systems, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you're totally right, too. I think it's more of a cultural thing than it is a tool to solve it. It's like, sure, you can have a great tool, but if you're not using it, then tool's not that great you know so you need you need the people and culture in place to make sure that it, it it's it's staying and going but then it's like i don't know to your point about like process versus the culture as well it's like yeah you can the process is only as good as the people and how you strive to, towards it as well um and obviously there's a lot that comes into play it's like there's a lot going on with new designs coming in and a lot on people's plates. So it's understandable that it's not an easy thing to keep up with, but I don't have a good answer for that one either. I think it'll be interesting if, I wonder if there's anyone out there that's listening that maybe has solved that. Cause <laughs> I would love to hear that. It'd be really interesting. Um, Cause we're definitely yeah. ever striving towards it. Yeah. I know there is people that are trying to solve it, but it's, it's, it's a very difficult problem. Like all of the systems that I've seen and used that try to either you? translate design into production code or vice versa tend to tend, tend to take a lot of effort to kind of to make happen and to get working. Um, so I know that it's a problem that people are, are aware of, but it's not necessarily a problem that I'm <laughs> seeing a solution for anytime soon. Um, I think we might have lost you again there. Yeah, this happened before. 
This is one of the reasons, boys and girls, why uh, this platform, Riverside FM, is not a platform that we will be <laughs> continuing to use because uh, it is it is ridiculous. I'm going to ask Molly when she returns, if she can return, about her thoughts on large language models. Inevitably, large language models will change conversation design. Well, I put a video out there last week with VoiceFlow, uh, looking at VoiceFlow's AI Assist feature, which is just launched, which is really good. It will do things like um, generate sample utterances. It will generate entities and, and synonyms for those entities. It will do things like um, create variations on the prompts that you create so that when a, when your assistant responds, it will have different uh, responses uh, and, and mix that up a little bit. Um, you can do all kinds of stuff with it. It's, it's really interesting. It's also got this freestyle mode, which means that you can turn freestyle on and anything that is outside the scope of the assistant, it will kind of pick up the conversation uh, and it will kind of try and get the assistant back on track. So it's definitely something that, that, is, uh, that is going to be very interesting. And look, like we've got Molly back. Hello. Hey, sorry about that. <laughs> kicked out no worries yeah i've just explaining uh that i think i'm going to move away from this platform because it's this is this has happened on two episodes now um and it's it's not good enough so i think we might revert back to our old our old software i was basically just kind of saying that um as you kind of dropped off i do know that people are focusing on that problem of trying to link together the design development but it's not quite a simple solution otherwise obviously it would have been done by now um but as you were kind of rejoining, I was just explaining there um, about as we wrap up to, to get your thoughts on the future of conversation design. Excuse Winston down there. My, my wife and son are just on the way. And so Winston goes mental. Um, so the future of conversation design, large language models, obviously, there's a lot of activity around things like ChatGPT and, and Microsoft's rolling out uh, OpenAI's APIs into Azure. Uh, they've got, we've got kind of like a voice flow, for example, that announced AI Assist, which is, I don't know if you've had a chance to try it, but it's pretty cool. And I know that, you know, Core AI are exploring it, Cognigy are exploring it. Um, and so just curious to kind of get your thoughts really based on some of the conversations that we've been having here around, you know, best practice for conversation design process for conversation design. What are your thoughts on these large language models, these generative models and how they might kind of influence the conversation design process uh, today? It's not even in future. It's today. <laughs> yeah. I'm excited to see kind of the opportunities it brings. Cause it seems like there's a lot. Um, I was actually just having a conversation with, some people in the Austin area last week about this. Um, we we're talking about how if we can automate certain pieces of the process, you know, like when you're reviewing all of the different, you know, utterances coming in or even just being able to generate some when you're going into testing and trying to build out your models. I think that is awesome. Like being able to leverage it kind of for some of those pieces um, that conversation designers own and just helping to evolve it. Um, it's also really exciting to see, like I, I played with the voice flow one um, and see how they're using it and think about how maybe even um, you could use it like internally to help people kind of guide people to different things, even maybe just as they're starting on a team or and teaching them like this is how we do things and it helps with maybe onboarding and stuff i don't know it'll, it'll be interesting i think there's a lot of different directions it can go i don't i don't see it as replacing conversation design anywhere in the near future because i definitely still see people and needing kind of somebody to be like reviewing everything that's happening um still makes a lot of sense i don't think it's quite there to completely understand but i'm excited i'm excited to see what's to come in the different use cases that people start using it for. Mm, definitely. Uh, I, I, it's not really much of a prediction because I think most of it's happening, but I think we'll definitely see every conversational AI vendor, including large language models and generative AI into their products to help the creation process for conversational AI. Um, and perhaps some of the management of dialogue as well. Um, because obviously in order to cater for a conversation that can go in lots of different directions, really a business uh, for Expedia, you really only care about the intents that you're supporting. 
You don't really care about anything else. You don't care what the weather's like in Seattle if someone asks you about that because they're going on a trip there. It's not really something that Expedia should really be focusing on, all that small talk stuff and that. And I think that hallucinations aside and huge risk implications of using these things in the wild aside, um, I think there's some value there both on the creation side and on on the actual end user interaction side. Um, but I definitely think we'll see all of the vendors implement that into their into their systems with maybe the exception of IBM and Google and those cloud kind of players. They seem to be a little bit behind in terms of features and stuff like that because obviously they rely a lot on people just coding stuff themselves essentially. So I suppose technically speaking, if you use like Watson, you could build a kind of a fulfillment layer that sends all requests to Watson to the OpenAI APIs and then basically build it like that yourself. But anyway, I know I'm going on a bit of a tangent, but I definitely agree and concur <laughs> that uh, 2023, I think, is the year of of, uh, of LLMs definitely hitting, hitting conversation like I big style. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see like the last person you have kind of at the end of the year, kind of where it's evolved to. You'll have to ask this question and see. <laughs> definitely, <laughs> I'll have to make a note of that. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I've make a note of that. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. We should do like a year in review, twenty twenty three. All of the the kind of change because it's going to be mad. I know. I know for a fact it is. I've I've seen what Voiceflow have done. I've seen what a couple of the other vendors are working on, and um, it's only going to go. It's only going to continue. The the thing that is interesting to think about is the risks of of this. We're going to publish this probably tomorrow. Basically, the risks of um letting these things out in the wild Mm -hmm. Um, because my little bit of paranoia in the back of my mind is all the vendors are going to try and implement large language models as a way of kind of like differentiating and therefore clients may then start using it and if there's a if the eye is taken off using it responsibly then we could be in a bit of a dicey situation. Obviously, Microsoft are working on it and OpenAI are working on it. So if you ask it something that's like, you know, racist or whatever, it will guard against it. So there is some protection in place, but still it just makes me a bit nervous about letting these things out in the wild and what, what you know, it could be fantastic, but it could be some side effects that we're not quite understanding. Yeah, I kind of feel like that's what we're going to see a lot of this year because it's even like, maybe you're not intending to do harm in any way but maybe you're asking a question that it can't answer but it's not actually answering it like factually it's like it's you know like yeah "Yeah, i'll go get this for you because it knows like hey somebody could go get this for you but like that's not what this chatbot actually acts on so it's telling you something that's just not realistic at all and i think kind of Mm. finding those guardrails is going to be really interesting to see how people start to define those um because I think that's going to be challenging because I think it's going to be a lot of things that we're just not going to think of until people kind of go in there and test yeah. it and which could definitely be risky and <laughs> I'm sure we'll see some surprising things. Definitely, definitely. And on, on a more sort of like less impactful uh, perspective, it, they, it can be quite rude. I don't know if you've noticed that. But if you ask, for example, if you were to ask ChatGPT the same thing over and over again, it starts to say things like, I've answered that. And, and, and like little quips like that, that like, you know, if you were designing a chatbot, you want to be really sensitive about the dialogue. You want it to be in line with the persona and personality. You don't want to kind of put the blame on the user. You want to always take the blame yourself and all this kind of stuff. And I've seen some responses which are kind of like, you know, it's not how, put it that way, it's not how I would have drafted a response to the user can be a little Mm -hmm. bit abrupt sometimes and so it's always a potential there to kind of like for people to think hang on is that is that having a go at me there like is it is this thing annoyed have i I pissed it off like there's always something that might happen you know like that that'll be interesting though because i feel like we're in this phase right now especially with the younger generation where uncurated is better like you know post a picture of whatever it doesn't have to be filtered you don't have to be posed all that kind of stuff when you're talking about like the social media phases and so what you just mentioned about how chat gpt is responding feels a little bit less curated than how we're used to designing you know it's like mm. we want to have a certain voice and i don't know that'll just be interesting to see like are people going to like that are they going to be offended by that are we going to move into a phase where maybe 
we become a little less curated, but at the same time with businesses, you can't really do that because they're going to be responsible mm-hmm. for whatever is happening. But I don't know. That, that just made me think of, you know, how things yeah. kind of are transforming on social media. And I wonder if any of that will come to play and how we design some stuff. It's definitely more natural. Yeah, it's definitely more natural, isn't it? Definitely more free flowing. Um, some of the stuff, it would take a conversation designer ages to be able to create the responses to enable a, a free flowing conversation. Um, but yeah, there is definitely considerations that we don't really know. We can't do anything about yet because we haven't come across the things, as you said, that we don't know yet. Mm-hmm. You know, the unknown unknowns. In fact, these are known unknowns, aren't they? We know there's something <laughs> that's going to happen. <laughs> we just don't know what it is. Yeah. Just sitting on edge. What's it going to be? That's class. Cool. Nice one. Well, thank you so much, Molly, for joining me. It's been absolutely fantastic. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. This has been wonderful. Such a good conversation yeah likewise and maybe we'll maybe we'll do this again towards the end of the year and we'll see what's going on yeah right. see whether Expedia have uh, have embraced the LLM revolution and how much damage might have been done over there hopefully no damage if we do right <laughs> exactly cool nice one well thank you all for tuning in uh, I will put the links to the Edinburgh event in the show notes as always VUX EU 23 if you want to save some money on the ticket at the European chatbot dot com uh no offense but i feel like that needs a better domain name uh the european chatbot.com but anyway get yourself there and we'll see you in edinburgh on the 16th thank you so much and we'll see you on the next one uh which is going to be with i forget who it's going to be with apologies for that but it's going to be with bots crew on thursday uh we're going to be talking to core ai potentially next week about large language models we're going to be talking about noble which is a platform built from the ground up on large language models and on thursday the 2nd of february this is one for your diary uh, molly we have the cto of Cohere on the podcast uh which is going to be amazing we're going to get a real close-up look at some of the llms being produced at Cohere and how that is going to impact conversational ai for the enterprise in future so we look forward to seeing you there until next time see you later